0: The scripture reading today is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, verses 2 through 5. You can find it printed on page 10 of your worship folder. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. So, we were in Vienna, Austria, shooting video for a television network of which I was a part. I was riding in a car with our other on-air host, he was driving, we were following our grip truck through the streets of old Vienna, when suddenly the grip truck made a turn to the left that somehow we did not make, and the two of us were lost on the streets of old Vienna. You say, well, why didn't you just take out your cell phones and call them? Yeah, this was back in the day when U.S. cell phones did not work in Europe. And so you say, well, why didn't you just stop and ask directions? That's a fine question. There were three reasons we did not stop and ask directions. First of all, we did not know where we were going. (laughs) It's a little bit difficult to stop and ask directions when you don't know where you're going. I mean, we knew we were going to one of Beethoven's houses, but it turns out old Beethoven was pretty peripatetic and lived in a bunch of different places, and so we didn't know which house... Second reason we didn't stop and ask directions is because we didn't speak the language. The only German I could speak was to say, I don't speak German. So that wasn't going to go real well. But of course, you know the main reason we didn't stop and ask directions is because a man was driving the car. (laughs) I think we still would have been driving around the streets of Vienna today if we had not happened into our grip truck again. Frustrating thing to get lost. David Wagner teaches at the University of Washington and he studies Native Americans on the Olympic Peninsula where it is so, so thick in that rainforest that you get about a hundred yards in and you've lost all sense of the four cardinal directions. And so he listened as the natives would teach the younger people how to navigate if they got lost in that forest. And being an English professor, Wagner turned that teaching into a poem that goes like this. When you're lost in the forest, stand still. When you're lost in the forest, stand still. The trees ahead and bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here. You must treat it as a powerful stranger, must ask its permission to know it and be known by it. Listen, the forest breathes, it whispers, I have made this place around you. If you leave, you may return, saying, here... No two trees are the same to a raven. No two branches are the same to a wren. If what a tree or a branch does has been lost on you, well, now you're surely lost. What do you do when you're lost in the forest? Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. John was lost profoundly lost. The only child of the old priest, Zechariah, and his wife, Elizabeth. Elizabeth had had a visitation from the angel Gabriel, telling her that she was going to have a child in her old age. Zechariah was also given the same message. He chose not to believe it, and then she found out that her cousin had received a similar message. The two got together to celebrate the births of their coming sons, and then came the day that John was born. Now, tradition would have it that he would be named after his father, Zechariah. But having not believed the angel and all, Zechariah figured maybe that wasn't going to fly, and so he said, actually, his name shall be John. And so he was raised as John, and he was the cousin of Jesus. Can you imagine just how frustrating that would be? You know they played together as children. You're out in the backyard, you break a dish, your mother comes out. Okay, boys, who broke the dish? Jesus broke the dish, Mom, I swear, Jesus broke the dish. Jesus, did you break that dish? No, it was John. I swear, Mom, it was Jesus who broke the dish. Now, John, you and I both know Jesus doesn't lie. (laughs) You'd be in therapy forever trying to get over that. Fortunately, a lot of good Jewish therapists around. That was helpful, I'm sure. And then comes the day that Jesus comes to John in their young adult life and says, John, to fulfill all righteousness, I want you to baptize me. And John's like, Well, that's a good one, Jesus. Yeah, that's a good one. He said, No, I want you to baptize me. Um, kind of should be you baptizing me. Yep, nope, I want you to baptize me. And so he baptized Jesus, and what happened? God spoke audibly. I think sounding a lot like Dame Judy Dench. That's the way I have it figured. <laughs> God speaks up and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And not only that, but a figure like a dove descended down from heaven to where Jesus stood. Now, if John ever had any doubt in his mind about who Jesus was, that was dispelled now. He just heard God speak. He just saw a dove descend from heaven. He is excited to tell the world the Messiah is at hand, the one is coming we've been expecting. But his enthusiasm got him into a little bit of trouble. Herod was the ruler of the land, not exactly a nice guy, decided he liked his brother's wife a lot better than he liked his own wife. So he seduced his brother's wife away, divorced his wife, married his brother's wife, life goes on except John spoke up and said, yeah, where we come from, that's not okay. Well, that was as good as slamming the cell door shut in John's face because he sent his soldiers out with a single request. You bring John back alive. He knew John was popular with the people. If he were to kill him, there might be a political uprising against him, and so instead, he decides just to put him in prison until the people forget about him. And what happens to John in prison? Well, like most of the Jewish population, John thought Jesus, the Messiah, was going to be a new political king who was going to defeat the Romans, bring independence back to Israel, and give people free food, a loaf of Roman meal bread on their doorsteps every morning. It would be great. And then reports start coming over the prison grapevine. Jesus doing nothing to put together an army. Jesus hanging out with the lowest of the low. Jesus doing nothing except meeting the needs of the poor, and he begins to doubt himself. Could I be wrong? Could it be that Jesus is not the Messiah? Could it be I've been preparing the way for an ordinary man, and John is filled with doubt? And that's a good thing. Because doubting everything is the beginning of wisdom. That's right. Doubting everything is the beginning of wisdom, but it never feels that way. It always feels like death. Now, the truth is that the truth will set you free. But the bad news is it's probably going to make you miserable first. Fowler in his book, Stages of Faith, talks about six stages of faith. The first two are a magical childhood stages of faith. The third stage is where a lot of people remain. It's a stage of faith where you see faith as rules and regulations, laws to be followed. For the Jews, 613 of them. Follow the laws, God will like you, or at least not hate you so much. Don't follow the laws, and you will go to hell. It's all about who's in, who's out, who's right, who's wrong, who's following the laws, and none of it requires you to think. That's why a lot of people like staying in stage three of religious development. But then a lot of us, including pretty much everybody here, I'm sure, comes to the point where you just can't abide by that anymore. And you move on into stage four, where you begin to doubt everything. Is what I was taught true or not? Are there lots of other religions that also hold truth? And you might even be doubting the very existence of God. And it's fine. In stage four, it's normal to find yourself in that stage of doubt. And if you're willing to stay there long enough, eventually you leave that and come to stage five, which is still usually the religion you grew up in. But you come back with a broader faith, a deeper faith, able to make room for those who are not quite as far along as you are on the journey. And when you come back to stage five, you also recognize there are a handful of people at stage six People like maybe Gandhi or Mother Teresa or the Dalai Lama who you're not ever going to quite get to but that's okay. <laughs> but you can't get to stages five and six without going through stage four without getting lost. John is now lost but it's all right because lost is a place too. It's all right to have to spend time in the place called lost Because lost is a place too. There are things you can learn in the place called lost. You can't learn any other way. A wisdom you can gain in the place called lost. Now there are plenty of people in the world who do not ever get lost. They're the people who never go anywhere. (laughs) But if in fact you have the courage to take a risk in life, well you will in fact get lost. But it's all right, because lost is a place too. So I was the CEO of a large religious nonprofit, the host of a national television show, the editor at large of a national magazine. I was a successful, well educated white American male. But Thomas Merton said it's a difficult thing to climb to the top of the ladder of success, only to realize when you get there that your ladder's been leaning against the wrong wall. I knew from the time I was three or four years of age that I was transgender. In my naivete, I thought I got to choose. I thought a gender fairy would arrive and say, "Okay, what's it going to be? Actually, I think that was part of male entitlement. Little white boys are told they can get anything they want, so why not a new gender? (laughs) But alas, no gender fairy arrives, so I just lived my life. I didn't hate being a boy, I just knew I wasn't one. Went to college, got married, had kids, built a career. But the call toward authenticity has all the subtlety of a smoke alarm. And eventually decisions have to be made. So I came out as transgender and promptly lost every single one of my jobs. I'd never had a bad review. And I lost every single job. In 21 states, you can't be fired for being transgender, but in all 50, you can be fired if you're transgender and you work for a religious corporation. This is good to know. It's not easy being a transgender woman. People often ask, do you feel 100% like a woman? And I say, well, you know, if you've talked to one transgender person, you've talked to exactly one transgender person. I I can't speak for anybody else. I feel 100% like a transgender woman. There are things a cisgender woman knows I will never know. That said, I'm learning a lot about what it means to be a female, and I'm learning a lot about my former gender. I have the unique experience of having lived life from both sides, and I'm here to tell you the differences. They are massive. (laughs) Start with the little tiny things. The pockets on women's jeans. (laughs) Why even bother? (laughs) You know, I got a pair of jeggings from Stitch Fix last week. They have stitching that makes you think there's a pocket there, but there's no pocket there. (laughs) Or the sizing of women's clothing. The numbers don't mean anything. Really, a double zero? And then I think this one is really telling. My former wife, who I'm, I'm still close, is five foot three inches tall and has a lot of curves, and she can go into any department store in America and try on 20 pairs of jeans, and none of them will fit. I can order jeans from any online retailer in America, order a 10 tall, and it's going to fit perfectly. There's something a little bit wrong with that. So you're making jeans for six-foot-one-inch women who don't have curves. Wait a minute. You're actually making women's jeans for six-foot-one-inch thin men. (laughs) This is how patriarchal our culture is. There's no way a well-educated white male can understand how much the culture is tilted in his favor. There's no way he can understand that because it's all he's ever known and all he ever will know. And conversely, there's no way for a female to understand the full import of that, because being a female is all she's ever known. She might have an inkling, she's working twice as hard for half as much, but she has no idea how much more difficult it is for her than it is for the guy in the Brooks Brothers jacket in the office across the hall. I know. I was that guy. And I thought I was one of the good guys. (laughs) Thoughtful, sensitive to women, egalitarian. I've had chances to meet all, a lot of the women that I used to work with, and I've said, I was one of the good guys, right? And they're like, yeah. no. <laughs> no, you're pretty clueless. Like pretty much every other guy is clueless. Women earn 78 cents in the dollar of what men earn in the United States. African American women, 64 cents in the dollar. Native American women, 59 cents in the dollar. Hispanic American women, 54 cents on the dollar. 4.8% of Fortune 500 CEOs are female. 6% of Silicon Valley CEOs. 2% of directors. 11% of writers. 19% of producers. 47% of first-year law associates are female, but only 15% make partners. Life is not easy for a females. At the rate we're going, it'll be 100 years before we even have pay equity. And apparently, since I became a female, I have become stupid. I learn this pretty much every week. So not long ago, I'm in a meeting in the board of directors, of which I'm a part. We have a new CEO, and we want to have the CEO be introduced at a large conference we run. And so everybody was saying, well, why don't we have her speak? And I said, well, she's actually not a public speaker, so maybe just have me interview her instead. I mean, it's a big crowd. And I said, but if, in fact, you want to have her speak, I will be happy to coach her. At which point, a powerful white male in the room said, well, if we're going to do that, why don't we get a real coach? I've done two TED Talks that have been viewed by over 3 million people. I have coached TED speakers. I'm speaking at the TED Summit next week. I taught speech in three different universities in the United States and one in Europe. What part of that is not a real speaker's coach? But of course, I didn't say anything. Because as a female in America, you're always on this knife edge. If you speak up for yourself, well, now you're a bitch. You're much too strong, and everyone's threatened by you. On the other hand, if you're too acquiescent, well, you're not a leader. So you're just kind of stuck in this middle space. Damned if you do, damned if you don't, and if you do speak up, You're just going to be interrupted by men because men interrupt women twice as often as they interrupt other men. It is not easy being a female anywhere on earth. You know, they call it the hero's journey. It's common to every age, every culture, every language, every ethnicity. An ordinary citizen is called onto an extraordinary journey onto the road of trials. And initially, they reject the call because, hey, it's the road of trials. <laughs> but now they're miserable because they rejected what they knew was the call of God. And so in their misery, finally a spiritual guide comes to them, a Yoda, who gives them the courage to answer the call under the hero's journey. And they find themselves on the road of trials. And sure enough, it's a road of trials. And then things get worse they find themselves in a deep, dark cave. What Dante was referring to at the beginning of the Divine Comedy when he said, In the middle of the road of my life, I awoke in a dark wood where the true way was wholly lost. What John of the Cross called the dark night of the soul. And you might be in that deep, dark cave for a very long time. I know I was, but eventually, eventually, You see the light at the end of the tunnel, and this time, finally, it's not an oncoming train. (laughs) And you find yourself back onto the ordinary road of trials, which now feels like absolutely nothing, given what you've been through in the deep, dark cave. And finally you get to the Holy Grail, even then your journey's not done, because you have to take that back and give it to those from whom you have departed. Now, everybody's called on the hero's journey. The question isn't whether you've been called or not. The question is, do you have the courage to answer the call? John had answered the call, and now he is miserable, lost, full of doubt. Is this not the Messiah? So he sends his followers to Jesus with a single question. Are you the Messiah? pretty direct. And Jesus answered, does he just answer directly? Yes, I am. Nope, nope. Go tell John the things you see me do and hear me say, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the poor have the gospel preached to them. John is not happy when he gets this riddle of an answer. But scripture in that time was an oral tradition. So in prison, he can think about these scriptures that he studied, and maybe, maybe, maybe at some point, he realizes Jesus is quoting from the Hebrew scriptures. So he goes back and studies those scriptures and realizes, oh, yeah, it was not ever promised that the Messiah would be a king, would be politically powerful, would bring about social change. That was never a part of the promise. So the story goes on. Herod's new wife's daughter does a dance at a big party that Herod's throwing. and Well, she does a fantastic job, and so Herod says to her afterwards, I'll give you anything you want. She said, great, I'll take the head of John the Baptist on a platter for my mother. And that's what she got. Not exactly a happy ending, but then the faith that looks for a happy ending isn't always the best kind of faith anyway. But the most fascinating part of the entire story to me is what Jesus said right after hearing about John's doubts. We lose it because it's just one little phrase before he changes subjects, but I know what I would have said. After John's disciples come and say, are you the Messiah or not? And I've given my answer, I'm going to turn back to the crowd and say, can you believe that? I grew up with that guy. He saw a figure like a dove come down from the heavens. He heard God speak and call me God's beloved son. I mean, you think you know somebody. <laughs> so what does he do? He turns to the crowd and says, there's none born of woman any greater than John. Well, how about that? Even in the midst of John's doubts, Jesus is like, well, of course. Because if you dare to answer the call under the hero's journey, if you dare to move through the stages of faith, if you dare to follow the call of the Spirit, you will get to the point where you are profoundly lost, and it's fine. Because lost is a place, too. So I transitioned and lost everything. I lost a million dollars' worth of pension. I had loaned the organization a half million dollars of my own money, the nonprofit that I ran. They didn't even want to give that back. I had to threaten a lawsuit to get most of it back. Didn't get all of it back. I knew thousands of people in my religious world. I had preached in three of the ten largest churches in the United States. I lost all of those friendships. Of the thousands of people I knew, I've been contacted in a nice way to date six years later. By about 60 of them. I've met 20 of them face to face, six of them more than once. I lost pretty much everything. But then someone introduced me to Mark Tidd, who was the founding pastor of Highlands Church in Denver, a church very similar to yours. And within three months, I was on the preaching team at Highlands, and then began working with Denver Community Church, another church like yours, willing to pay the price to do the right thing. And then my son's church, Forefront Church, in Brooklyn, New York, those three churches joined together to start a new church in Boulder County, Colorado, left-hand church, where I'm now one of the pastors. And in the midst of all that, I was asked to speak for TEDx Mile High in Denver to 6000 people at one of the largest TEDx's in the world that now has been viewed online over 2 million times I've heard from women on all seven continents including Antarctica That then caused me to be asked to speak for TED Women with my son this past November. That's been viewed over a million times. And now I'm speaking at the TED Summit in Scotland next week, and my son will be there, and we're speaking together there. And I'm speaking all over the world on issues of gender equity. Next year, they're making a feature film about my life, all of it, because I'm really special. I'm kind of an ordinary human who is willing to understand that the call toward authenticity is sacred. It is holy. It is for the greater good. You as a church have answered that call, and you paid a price for it, because you always pay a price when you answer the call toward authenticity. Authenticity. You always find yourself for a period of time in that place called lost. But if you will remain in that deep, dark cave on the road of trials, eventually you do find the Holy Grail, and the Holy Grail is yourself. Mary Oliver is one of my favorite poets. I love her poem, The Journey. It goes like this One day you knew what you had to do and began though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each voice cried. Mend my life, but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough, and a wild night, and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, as you left their voices behind, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds and there was a new voice, a new voice, a new voice, which you slowly recognized as your own, that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. God, thank you for calling us on the authentic journey. I'd like to say thanks for making it hard, but I still don't feel that way, God. Uh, yeah, I, it's really... But I do understand, without going through the pain, there is no wisdom. Knowledge can come without pain, but wisdom cannot come without pain. God, I I get it, I get it. Thank you for calling each of us onto the hero's journey. Give us the courage to travel the road of trials. Give us the courage to understand that the call toward authenticity is sacred and holy and for the greater good and give us the confidence that you will be with us every inch of the way. For this we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.